after a while, sometimes it takes a long time, sometimes it happens very quickly, but after a while, followers begin to resemble the person they follow. It's kind of a truism in life uh, from, from children who in, in one way or another are going to grow up to resemble their parents, to assistant coaches who, who go off to take a new head coach position, and it turns out that not only did they bring their former head coach's techniques, they bring a lot of his traits with them as well, to political aides who begin to sound very much like the politicians they serve. In all walks of life, kind of everywhere we turn, the power of a compelling example is undeniable. Now, the Bible has long understood this phenomenon. In fact, I think it explains it. As human beings, as as creatures, we are made in the image of God. And that means, fundamentally, we are reflective beings. We are, by nature, imitators. We, we actually weren't meant to find our identity by looking inside somewhere and trying to find it. No, no, we were made to find our identity outside of ourselves. And the person, of course, that we're supposed to follow, the, the person that we are meant to, in fact, made to resemble, is God. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, whether we follow God or not, the the, the reality is we will become like whatever we worship, whatever or whoever we we, we follow and and, and give ourselves to, our lives to. The Old Testament prophets declared that, that those who serve false gods become like those false gods. Uh, by the same token, the God of heaven, the God who made us, declares, be holy because I am holy. So it turns out that the question, who do you worship, is answered by another question. Who do you resemble? And there, of course, is the rub. If we're to be accepted by God, we must be like God. We must resemble God. But if we are to be like God, well, then we need far more than an example to imitate, don't we? We need the power of God to remake us, to recreate us in his image, to to give us new life. And friends, that that power, that that authority is exercised by one person and one person alone, God's anointed king. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 23, 2 Samuel chapter 23. It's found on page 512, 512, if you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided, 2 Samuel chapter 23. Now, this chapter, it's the next to last chapter in the whole book of 2 Samuel. It it breaks down into three sections. I'm going to give you kind of the outline, both of the chapter and and of my sermon, right up front here. 
It breaks down into three sections. First, in verses 1 to 7, verses 1 to 7, we have the character of the king's reign. The character of the king's reign, or his rule. Second, in verses 8 to 23, verses 8 to 23, we have the effect of the king's reign. The effect of the king's reign. And then finally, in verses 24 to 39, from 24 to the end of the chapter, we have the extent of the king's reign. The extent of the king's reign. And as we look at this passage today, as you, as you think about what I just talked about, the way in which we, we resemble who we follow and our need, for the power of God, exercised by God's king to remake us, I want you to think about your own life. Consider whose authority you're submitting to. Who, in fact, are you following? Whose image do you increasingly resemble? All right, first, the character of the king's reign. The character of the king's reign. Verse 1 of chapter 23. These are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel, singer of songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear, They are burned up where they lie. It's the first part of this chapter. And in these, his his last words, not not literally his last words, right? But his last words for the record, sort of the official last words. We're going to get his deathbed words in 1 Kings whenever we get to 1 Kings. We'll get his deathbed words there. But here in his last words, kind of for the record, David prophetically declares that the rule of God's anointed king brings light and life to all who sit under it. That's the character of the king's reign. It is a reign that brings light and life to all who sit under that government. That's that's really the dominant image there of verse 4, which is really the center of this this, this prophecy. It's It's a strikingly beautiful and evocative image, isn't it? He is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. I mean, who who of us here hasn't felt that that sense of just sort of expansive hope, that that, that sense of, of limitless possibility as the sun rises bright and clear on a summer morning in Oregon? And of course, it's only a summer morning in Oregon. But at least we get the summers, right? And we really appreciate those summer mornings because there are no other mornings like them in Oregon, at least western Oregon. But you know that feeling. 
in, in late July, in August, when the sun rises and there is not a cloud in the sky, and you have that feeling that, that anything is possible today, and all is life and light and, and, and well. Or, or even in our, our kind of gray and, and constantly drizzly Oregon, I mean, even here in Oregon, we know that, that second image that, that David talks about. When, when after a, a good spring rain, and the, and the clouds part, and, and everything becomes bright, and, and everything feels, feels fresh and, and, and alive and new. Friends, David says that's what the reign of the king is like. This, this life, this newness, this, this hope, this sense of, of limitless possibility is what happens when the king reigns. It's a beautiful image. And yet we read it, and maybe you're even sitting there thinking about this, and you realize, well, wait a minute. I mean, it's a beautiful image, but it's nothing like reality. I mean, not only does that image of authority not square with our experience of authority, but it doesn't even square with the message of Scripture, it seems. It doesn't even square with the rest of the book of, of Samuel, of First and Second Samuel. I mean, back in, in 1 Samuel 8, when, when Israel first asked for a king, here's what the prophet Samuel said to them about what the king's rule would be like. This is from 1 Samuel 8. Samuel said, This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes... You will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. When you read 1 Samuel chapter 8 and and what the prophet Samuel said about the rule of the king, well, it's, it's hardly a picture of life and light, of promise and possibility, is it? More, more like the greed, more like the oppression, more like the, the loss of liberty that we so often associate with, with human government and human authority, and if we even in America associate greed and corruption and taking with human government and authority, think about what the rest of the world thinks about human authority and human government. And for good reason. I mean, because that's, that's, that's what human authority does so often, isn't it? It takes it, it, it oppresses, it, it subjugates, it rules for itself 
rather than for the good of those that are ruled. You know, normally in my pastoral prayer, I, I pray for, for the nations of the world, and I'll pray for them very specifically. And this is one of the reasons that I pray for the leaders of other nations and our own nation by name. And you'll notice that oftentimes one of my basic prayers is that the rulers of, of, of Kenya and that the rulers of, of China and that the rulers of America would rule for the common good and not just for their own good. Because that's the tendency of human authority, to serve itself rather than others. So we're brought up short when we read this. This is not, here in in 2 Samuel 23, what we typically associate with authority and government. What we need to understand is that David is not talking, finally, about fallen human authority. He's talking about God's authority as it is exercised, as, as it is actually uh, uh, used by God's promised king. David surrounds this prophetic vision of life under the rule of God's king with, with both a condition and a promise. The condition is in verse 3. When one rules over men in righteousness... When he rules in the fear of God. When the king rules in righteousness in the fear and the fear of God, then and only then is rule life-giving and light-bringing. Now, when he talks about that, he's talking about the king himself being in a right relationship with God. The king himself perfectly submitted to God's authority. When the king is in that relationship with God, oh, then, then, then life and light comes to everyone else. Then in verse 5, David looks forward. He looks forward to the promise of when this condition will be met. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part? He's referring here to the covenant that God made with him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that a son would come someday that would sit on his throne, who would rule over God's people in righteousness forever. A son whose rule would be grounded in righteousness and so would be honored by God. In contrast to the wicked there in in verses 6 and 7, whom God treats roughly, whom God basically goes to battle against. The, the king in righteousness, whom God loves, that king is granted his every desire. And that desire is that life would come to his people, that, that light would shine over his people. Now, there are a lot of lessons that we could draw about good government here. And maybe if I was in Washington, D.C., I would take some time to speak to all the people that are in federal government about what they can learn from this passage, but I'm not. And even if I were going to do that, that's not finally what this passage is about. This passage is not about authority in general. This passage is about the authority of God's anointed king, and, and friends, that's Jesus. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas, the, the arrival of God's promised king, the the fulfillment of God's promise to David that David looks forward to even in this verse, the birth of the Messiah. You know, the prophecies declared 
that, that with the Christ's birth, with the Messiah's birth, a people living in darkness would see a great light. When, when, when Jesus was born, the, the angels showed up, right? Surrounded by heavenly light. And what did they declare? They declared that, that a Messiah had been born in the city of David. They were pointing to the fact that the promise was being fulfilled. A king had been born. When, when the Magi show up, what do, what do they bring? They bring kingly gifts. Gifts fit for a king. This, of course, is why Herod is so upset. Because they've come asking, where is born the, the king of the Jews? You know, throughout his life, Jesus spoke with the authority of a king. The people commented on this. They commented on the fact that, that unlike everybody else who based their authority on, on something else, Jesus just said, like a king, I say to you. He spoke like a king. And, and what did he say about himself? He said he was light and life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection, and the life. When they crucified Jesus, this was the charge against him, king of the Jews. Rome meant it as mockery. But friends, it was true. As one theologian put it, a higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire, and that cross, the throne of dominion which shall never end. Friends, here's the wonder of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas is that the king not only was born, but that the king of righteousness came, and though we rejected him, he did not reject us. Though, though we deserve the, the iron tool of judgment, the, the tool that you use with thorns, no, instead he took the iron nails into his own hands and feet. It, it was his side, not ours, that felt the butt of that spear. And though we deserved the judgment reserved for thorns, it was his brow that wore them. Friends, on, on the cross, the king of righteousness died for the unrighteous so that the unrighteous, people like you, people like me, all who receive him through repentance and faith might actually find life and light through his reign. You know, throughout his ministry, he did miracles that pointed to this. He healed blind people. He brought light to blind eyes. He, he raised people from the dead. He brought life to mortal bodies. But those miracles were not the point. They were pointers. They were pointers to what he did on the cross and what he accomplished through his resurrection, bringing spiritual light to blind eyes, bringing spiritual life to, to the spiritually dead. 
if you're here this morning, and maybe you're here because it's kind of Christmas time, and, and you tend to go to church around Christmas time, friend, this is what we want you to understand. This is the significance of Christmas. Not just that a little baby was born, but that that baby was the king, the light of the world, and that he grew up and died for sinners whose lives are filled with darkness, but who desperately need his light. And that if you will turn to him today, if you'll submit yourself to him, you can begin to know his light and his life right now. Now, if you're a Christian, if if you've already submitted to Jesus Christ, then we need to recognize that that this is not just a prophecy about the future, though it is. This is a prophecy about Christ's reign in our lives today. Christ's reign right now brings light and life to his people. Now, now how how does that work? How does Christ actually reign today? Well, there are a lot of different ways we can talk about it. But, but what I want to point out, and this is one of the things that we've thought a lot together with the pastoral residents uh, this, this last semester, is that publicly, Christ reigns through his church. Christ reigns through the local church. That's how he makes his reign public to the world today, even though they can't see him. In Matthew chapter 16 and in Matthew chapter 18, Christ entrusts the keys of the kingdom, that is his authority, to the church. He didn't entrust it to me individually. He didn't entrust it to you individually. He entrusted it together to the local church. How do we exercise then together in the local church Christ's authority? Well, we exercise it through the preaching of his word. We don't preach my word. You know, I didn't spend all week like trying to think up really inspiring things to say and then read them to you. No, I got up and I read to you Christ's word. And now I'm going to try to help apply and explain what those words mean. We proclaim his word. We declare his gospel. That's how Christ exercises his reign, as as his messengers go out and declare his word. We, We also exercise his authority as we publicly recognize those who rightly confess the gospel. So we not only declare the gospel, but as a local church, our responsibility is to rightly recognize those who have also submitted to that gospel, who rightly confess that gospel. How do we do that? Well, we do it through baptism. And this is one of the ordinances that Christ gave us. When we baptize somebody, we're saying, hey, this one, we have every reason to believe, has actually submitted to Jesus Christ. And we want to recognize them publicly as a fellow citizen, as a follower of Jesus Christ. We also exercise his authority through the Lord's Supper. As we invite all those who have submitted to Christ, who have bent the knee to Christ, and have done so publicly by being baptized, by joining a local church, we invite them to participate in this meal with us. We also exercise Christ's authority by excluding those who do not rightly confess the gospel through their lips and through their lives. I do that when I explain who's allowed to come to the Lord's Supper and who's not. We do that as we exercise church discipline. You know, I have no authority to put anybody outside of the church. 
I can't do that. I wouldn't want to do that on my own. I wouldn't trust myself to that. And Jesus certainly didn't. No, instead, he gave that authority to us as a congregation through the leadership of the elders. See, again and again, in all sorts of different ways, we as a congregation exercise the authority of Christ. We show that Christ is reigning as we declare his word, as we recognize those who have submitted to that word, as we exclude painfully those who will not. So if you're here this morning and and, and you're a Christian, I need to ask you, have you submitted to Christ's authority? Well, maybe you have. So have you done so publicly? Have you submitted to Christ's authority publicly by being baptized, by, by joining a local church, by committing yourself to sit under his word? Now, now if, if you have done that, and that would be probably most of the people in this room, do you take that seriously? Do you take your membership, your citizenship in the kingdom of Christ seriously? This is, this is not a club membership, right? This is membership in the family of God. This is membership in his body as, is, as it's expressed locally. Christian, this is how Christ brings light and life into your life now. As you submit to him in a local church, then he exercises his authority as we submit to one another, speaking the truth in love to one another, building one another up in the gospel, warning one another in love, admonishing one another without growing weary. Thankfully, though, this is not the end. Even as we experience the light and life that God brings to us through Christ, through the gospel in the local church, we look forward to the day when the local church doesn't exist anymore. And instead, there is just one glorious assembly of God's people from all time, from all places, gathered around the throne when Christ's authority is exercised directly, no longer mediated through a a written word, no longer mediated through elders, no longer mediated through a local church, but face to face, we see the king. Face to face and all together, we serve the king and all is life and light. No more thorns, no more evil, no more oppression. Only glorious, unending day. Christian, that's our hope. And we need to keep it in front of us always. Because this is the character of Christ's reign. This is the character of the reign of the king. It brings life and light to all who receive it, even now and forever. Second, what does this look like in our lives? What does this look like in our lives? Well, this brings us then to the effect of the king's reign, the effect of the king's reign. Look at verse eight. These are the names of David's mighty men. 
Josheb, Bashabeth, a Tachmanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shema, son of Aji, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while the band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in his stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zeruiah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Joiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Now at first glance, It feels like these are all the cool stories that the author couldn't figure out where else to put into the narrative, and so he just stuck them here at the end. Because we know, actually, from some of the details, that that chronologically, these happened at different times throughout the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel. But, But in fact, this section is very carefully arranged, with the exploits of the three mighty men on one side, that's verses 8 to 12, The leaders of the three and the 30 on the other side, that's verses 18 to 23, and then in the middle, David's honor of these men in verses 13 to 17. And as you read through, what's striking about all of their exploits is the extent to which all of these men resemble David. Do you see that? They they go and do what David did. Like David defeating Goliath, these men went out and in single-handed combat defeat the enemies of God's people, the thing that David was most and best known for. Only actually in many ways, their exploits are even greater than David's exploit. They're they're like, uh, Jeff and I were talking about this uh, this week, They're, they're sort of like kung fu fighters, aren't they? You know? Uh, My favorite verse is verse 10. In this whole section, my favorite verse 
is, is, is verse 10. The troops returned, but only to strip the dead. I mean, can you get a better line than that? It is straight out of Hollywood. It belongs in a trailer to like a Rambo movie or something, right? And, that, and that's, that's who these, these guys are. The, the original Rambo, the original Master Chief, the original Bruce Lee or, or Iron Man, you, you pick your genre, that's who these guys are. And if you were ever a nine-year-old boy sitting through a long church service, you already know this chapter. This was one of your go-to chapters, and you spent many hours there. I know I sure did. But the point of this chapter is not that these guys are superheroes, that they're supermen. The point is they're like David. They are like the king that they follow and serve. You see, when David went up single-handedly against Goliath, he didn't go in his own strength. He declared in 1 Samuel 17 to Goliath, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down so that all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword and spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord. You see, David understood that it was through the empowering of the Spirit of God that he was going to win that battle, not the superiority of his weapons. And so it was for David's followers. Verse 10, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Verse 12, the Lord brought about a great victory. You see, when we read these exploits, we're not just meant to think of David, though we are meant to think of David. We're meant to think of David's God. The same spirit of God that delivered Goliath to David, the same spirit of God that empowered Saul to rescue the city of Jabesh-Gilead, the same spirit of God that empowered Jonathan to rout the Philistines is the same spirit of God that is at work in these men here in chapter 23. The effect of the king's reign is that the king's men Become like him as a testimony to the power of the king's God. Now, that is true for David and his followers. It is even more true for David's greater son, Jesus, and his followers. You realize, Christian, that when you read these exploits, you're, you're meant to feel like you're looking in a mirror at yourself. In John chapter 14, Jesus told his disciples, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father so that glory might be brought to the King's God, the King's men, women begin to resemble the king. And Jesus went on there in John's gospel to explain that the way he would do this is by sending the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit who who comes into our life and and doesn't, doesn't restrict us, but empowers us. Who who doesn't give us a spirit of of timidity and fear, but but a spirit of boldness. Christian, this is what the reign of Christ does in our lives. This is one of the reasons why, in fact, Jesus waited to send the Holy Spirit. 
right? It, the Holy Spirit doesn't come as soon as Jesus is resurrected from the dead. No, no first Jesus must ascend to the Father. That, that ascension being a picture of his coronation. Jesus ascends to the Father and he sits down on the throne. And so it is, it is as king that he sends the Spirit to his people. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit brings life and light. The Spirit brings the new birth, makes us alive. And then the Spirit gradually and inexorably conforms us to the image of the King so that we increasingly look like Jesus. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So like Christ, Christian, we fight. We fight like these guys. We fight against the enemies of sin and Satan in the power of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6. Because we belong to Christ, because we're his men and women, we live by the Spirit and we keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians chapter five. Like Christ, we preach a message of reconciliation, a a message of reconciliation with God, not in our own power, but through the power and the wisdom of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter two. This is what the Spirit does. He causes us more and more gradually, but inexorably, to resemble Jesus. Because the ministry of the Spirit isn't to call attention to the Spirit, to to himself. The ministry of the Spirit is not to empower us for miracles just for for the sake of miracles. You know, that's the error that some, not all, but some in the charismatic and the, and the signs and wonders movement have made to, to assume that the ministry of the Spirit is all about the Spirit. But it's not. The ministry of the Spirit in and through us is not to call attention to the Spirit, but to call attention to Jesus as he makes us look more and more like Jesus by pre- reproducing the life of Jesus in us. The one you follow is the one you will increasingly resemble. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I've just explained why it is that Christians increasingly resemble Jesus. We're following him and he's given us his spirit. If you're not following Jesus, well, you're following something. You're giving your life to something. The Bible would say you're worshiping something. Maybe you're not sure what you worship. That might seem like strange language to you. Maybe, maybe you're, you don't feel like you're following anything. Well, so ask this different question. Who or what do you resemble? That will tell you who or what you're worshiping. It might be money. It might be power. It might be pleasure. It might be safety and security. It might be the opinion of other people. But you are certainly following something or someone you can figure out who it is by beginning to ask yourself, who do I resemble? And then just let me ask you, is it producing light and life in your life? Or is what you're worshiping, in fact, just increasing the darkness?
increasing the sense that life is out of control, increasing the oppression, the sense of slavery. Friends, you need a better king, a king that will bring light and life into your life. As a church, the way people know that we live under the rule of Jesus is because we resemble him. Not in acts of military prowess, but in acts of spiritual prowess. As we love one another sacrificially, as as we love those even who hate us and we pray for them, as we pray down spiritual strongholds of sin, as we lay down our lives and our treasures to see the good news of the gospel taken to the ends of the earth. Henson Baptist Church, I I, I hear here in Portland all the time what we used to be known for. I hear sometimes from you all what we used to be known for. I don't really care what we used to be known for. I care what we're known for now. Are we known for our resemblance to Jesus? You know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if we used to be known for this program or that program or, or, or whatever, because none of that will count at the end. The only thing that will count is the extent to which we were known for Jesus, because we looked like him. Christian, just as David honored these men who, who brought him a drink, not treating their devotion to him lightly, Christ will honor you. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. There's great cost in seeking to follow Jesus. There's great cost, trial, suffering, pain sometimes in a life that is given to resembling Jesus. But you need to know as you count the cost Jesus holds your life dear, and he will not let a single sacrifice, he will not let a single drop of our blood, he will not let a single tear shed for him go unanswered. So do not fear. Do not fear to risk great things for this king. Do not fear to risk the greatest thing for this king, which is your very life. Because on the last day, Jesus Christ will vindicate your faith in him. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you, on that day, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which today you are suffering. The character of the king's reign is that it brings life. The effect of the king's reign is that we begin to resemble the king. That leads us finally to the extent of the king's reign, the extent of the king's reign, just who exactly is included in this gracious kingdom of life and light. We'll look at verse 24. Among the 30, there were... You didn't think I was really gonna read all those names, did you? I know you'd like to hear me try. No, I'm not going to read all those names. What I want to point out to you, though, 
is just who is in this list. Of course, there are many from David's own family, many from his own tribe of, of Judah, Asahel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, son of Dodo and Beth, uh, from Bethlehem, right there at the top of the list. Those, those two are, are actually from the clan and the tribe of Judah. Those are kinsmen of David. And, and that's not really surprising that the king would have amongst his closest advisors, his chief officers, his own family members. What is surprising is verse 29. Ithai, son of Ribai, from Gibeah and Benjamin. Gibeah and Benjamin. Our ears are supposed to prick up at that point. We know that town. That's Saul's hometown. Abiezer and Nahari, later on in the list, they're from the tribe of Benjamin too. That's Saul's tribe. What kind of king would include in his closest band of brothers men who had once been loyal to the man who had sought his life? We can dig deeper into the list. Several more of these men were from the northern tribes of Israel, which had been quick to desert David in his hour of need. Another, Eliam, there in verse 34, was the son of Ahithophel, David's closest advisor and the man who betrayed him to his own son Absalom. We can dig even deeper. Zelek, Igal, and Uriah, they're not even Israelites. They're foreigners, outsiders to the nation. Friend, David was king over Israel. But his reign graciously extended to any who would bend the knee to him, including former enemies, including the sons of traitors, including even foreigners who had no claim whatsoever on his love. And friends, in this, David points us forward to Jesus best of all. And this is where we conclude. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done or what history you bring. The gracious reign of King Jesus, a reign that brings light and life, a reign that transforms men and women, will include you if you will submit to him. You see, the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That day will be a day of judgment, a day when wicked rebels are cast aside like thorns for everlasting burning. But friends, that day is not today. Today is the day when new life can dawn in you as surely as the light of morning at sunrise. Who do you follow? Who do you resemble? Today is the day when you can begin to resemble the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that that as we think about your authority, we, we think of it wrongly. We think of it as that which takes and oppresses And yet, your word tells us otherwise. Your your word tells us that your authority exercised through Christ doesn't take, it gives. 
It doesn't oppress, it frees. It doesn't kill, it gives life. Oh, Lord Jesus, give us, give us eyes to see. Bring light to our, to our minds. Bring life to our hearts. Let us see and receive your life-giving rule. May it begin in us today, and may it never end until we have been fully and truly conformed to your image, O Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.